This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver's population is expected to surpass 700,000 next year, and that growth is expected to continue. So where will newcomers live in 5, 10, 20 years? How will they get around? The city is grappling with these and other questions as part of a big planning effort called Denverite. Here's Mayor Michael Hancock. We are creating a comprehensive 20-year roadmap that will help us better manage change, not from the top down, but with neighborhood direction and your guidance. So far, thousands of residents have weighed in on charting our city's future, including transforming our transportation future. In just a bit, we'll hear from a Denver City Councilman whose district has radically changed in the face of development. But first, the city's chief planner, Brad Buchanan. He is leading this two-year Denverite project, which is at about the halfway mark now. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. So most residents who were surveyed as part of this said they're satisfied living in Denver. But when you asked what their biggest concerns are, number one is people can't afford to live here, followed by getting around or the inability to do so. Too many people decreased safety and quality of architecture. We're going to dive into some of those. But what do those answers generally tell you about the state of Denver today? So, you know, Denver's an incredibly successful place, and um, but it's time to update our planning processes and, and to really take a holistic look, not just at what Blueprint Denver, our integrated land use and transportation plan, wants to look at, but but more about uh, transit, about open space and parks, and about how we move in all types of ways, not just cars, but bikes and pedestrians, all multimodal ways of thinking. And that's what Denver Right is all about. That is about trying to uh, give options for folks to involve and understand that Denver really is, you know, can be a whole greater than the sum of its parts. It's about looking towards what uh, what isn't working, what what are your frustrations. Um, we know that you know we're growing at an unprecedented rate. We're seeing levels of development and investment at unprecedented rates. But that development and investment is being guided by planning that we did in our city 10, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, I can imagine some people saying, what planning? Is guiding all of it. So, you know, with the pace of change, folks see tower cranes and dumpsters on their street and buildings that they've seen for 50 years go away. And that's, that is change. And it's, and, and it's, it is, it's just disturbing to, to folks and particularly at that pace. But development uh, occurs, the market occurs at the rate that it occurs. The, the trick and the most important thing is to plan in advance of that. Blueprint Denver adopted in 2002 created areas of change and areas of stability. And, you know, at a ratio since 2002 of five times the development is occurring in areas of change over, over, over areas of stability. And essentially, as part of the previous plan, Blueprint Denver, the city said, what are the areas where uh, – change would be best focused? And what are areas where character ought to be especially preserved? And, uh, you know, the idea was that new developments should take place in those areas of change. But, you know, many say that that hasn't happened as much as the city would have wished. And that some of the city's most stable neighborhoods have seen tremendous change. What's the deal? So I think that we have tried to provide tools that 
um, regulate at different levels. So our zoning code regulates at a, at, a, at a base level. It's the foundation for all the other tools. But then on top of that, you can layer design review or overlay districts, conservation overlays, design overlays, design review, and our most rigorous form of design control, landmark districts. We have you know over 7,000 structures that are designated landmarks in the city and county of Denver that – that no change can happen to those structures without a very rigorous design review. So it really is – those tools are available. I, I personally believe that we, we need to be doing a lot more design review. We recently started a really uh, – a next generation type of design review process. And, and say what design Square. review is just because I think that's kind of planning jargon. OK. So – you know, our zoning code talks about some some basic rules, setbacks, basic height, but it doesn't get into uh, it gets into some basic form characteristics, where your entry is, where where the garage is going to be, but it doesn't get into you know the actual design of facades and the materials that are placed on those facades and, and landscape plans and all those things that really create character. And so you would like those tools that address those latter attributes to be used more strongly as Denverite goes forward? I, I would. I mean, Denverite is going to be a is, – is obviously a much broader uh, discussion uh-huh. of all those different sort of uh, areas of expertise and areas of concern for our city. But Denverite will lay out some – it, some directions for us to go based on what the community is telling us. And what is the community telling you about the feel of what's being built? So I think I think one of the big messages I'm hearing is, is a broader conversation about what stability means. So, you know, areas of change and areas of stability were sort of a, you know, a, a black and white. And, and now I think the community wants to see um, that, that more, um, uh, what's the right word, it, it, more sensitivity in some areas to direct more development to particular areas. And that's, that's what we're, that's what the process has been. We, we just launched uh, a few months ago, our growth game where citizens could get online and um, tell us where they'd like to see growth. It just closed a couple of weeks ago. And now we're, um, you know, calculating all that data and trying to see what the community told us. You essentially asked the community, hey, more people are moving here. You got to put them somewhere. Where would you put them? And and so do you think that that behind some people's concerns here about change and about development is just like a nimbyism, a not in my backyard? Is it an anxiousness about change in general? Or do you think it's it's more a frustration specifically with Denver's approach? I I think it's testament to how much people love our city. I mean, we have such great pride and justifiably in in our neighborhoods. Not, you know, not every city knows exactly where the boundaries of, you know, their neighborhoods are. I mean, you know, you think of the the boroughs in New York City, everybody knows exactly where that is. Denver is very much. I mean, you know if you are in West Highlands, you know if you're in Crestmore, you know if you're in Southmore, you know exactly what those definitions are of those geom- those geographies. And that's that's born out of a tremendous pride and love of place. And I, th- I think it's fantastic. I think that's what that's why we have such great involvement in Denver, right? Just people care about the future of the city. Let's talk about transportation. Um, your survey found that the most common change people would like to see is decreased traffic congestion. Is that possible given Denver's growing population? 
I don't think we're ever going to see a time in Denver's future where cars are just going to, you know, you're going to be able to drive wherever you want is, you know, to the maximum speed limit um, ever again uh, in, in our center, particularly in our center, center city streets. That ship about, has sailed. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the pipe is full. Now it's about figuring out how can we move more people through that space in, in different ways and do it in a way where the experience of that place is better. When you think about the places we all go on vacation, we go to places that are multimodal and crowded oftentimes. Great cities, great places, great plazas, Larimer Square, you know, what, what makes Larimer Square so great? It's not that you can whiz down that street. It's the feeling of the place. In the neighborhoods, the same way. So how do we make them more multimodal, more options for people to enjoy them in the way that makes sense to them? And survey respondents have said that they want to see additional transportation options in Denver. Uh, in fact, Mayor Hancock recently proposed a nearly $750 million bond measure that includes a number of transportation projects including deferred road maintenance and sidewalk repair, but also bus rapid transit, for instance, along Colfax, more protected bike lanes. How, how does that dovetail with the Denverite planning effort? Well, Denverite is land use and transportation, parks and recreation, pedestrian and trails. It is that holistic, simultaneous, real-time conversation that's happening. First major city in the United States to do it that way. Um, and what, what do you think could become the next Larimer Square? The next Larimer Square. You're saying that that is closely tied to the walkability of that space and I suppose how the shops and things engage pedestrians walking by. Do you, do you picture that kind of charm along Colfax? Uh, I think Colfax is a place unto itself. It's very unique. It's not going to be Larimer Square. It's not going to be Cherry Creek. It's going to be what Colfax is. But I think we're going to see all different types at different scales of intensity, those kind of places, whether it's a small embedded uh, mixed-use retail commercial corridor like Pearl Street or um, uh, Gaylord or, or Tennyson or something like that. We're going to see those kinds of places. And then we're going to see bigger places that are going to be, you know, that like the, what's happening at Stapleton or Lowry and places like that as well. Do you think that Denver deserves better looking buildings? I do. I do. I think that we, uh, it's fantastic that that our community has raised their level of expectation around architecture and design. I'm an architect and I very much uh, appreciate that and I believe we should build on that momentum and public outcry to to provide uh, – to do more in terms of design review, more design control. Uh, we just did it in Arapahoe Square. I'd like to see it in all of downtown and I really would like to see those tools put in place in, in our, you know, our stable center city neighborhoods. Design Absolutely. review, which we talked about a bit earlier. You know, there's even a Facebook page dedicated to this topic called Denver Fugly, which comments on new buildings going up. Uh, so back to that idea, is is design review, though, potentially a tool that just kind of infringes on people's ability to do what they want with their property? You well, know, th that's the other side of this coin. That's why it doesn't happen everywhere, because not everybody wants that. How do you strike the balance? I think it's about trying to make a, a, that sort of regulatory process, that review process, rational and uh, affordable so that we don't, you know, increase the cost of housing, for example, through a design review process. And we're doing that. The Arapahoe Square 
design review district, uh, which has a design uh, review board. It's sort of on the edge of downtown, by the way. Right, right. Just to the north of downtown. Uh, Lots of undeveloped parking lots there, um, surface parking lots that, you know, are great places for urban density to occur. Lots of transit options there. But we want it to be world-class quality. And and we as a city are ready to do that. Blueprint Denver, the predecessor to this new Denverite project, uh, is kind of a master plan for the city, not a legally binding document. How, how will the replacement be different? Well, Blueprint De- the the update to Blueprint Denver, it's a it's a planning document, it's a visioning document. But but make no mistake, that visioning document will have to dos. For example, the original Blueprint Denver said you need a new zoning code. And in 2005, between 2005 and 2010, we did that. So this will give us new guidance and the regulatory environment and administration will absolutely change coming out of Blueprint Denver after Blueprint Denver is completed. And that's how you implement the vision. And that's why we really urge everyone to to get involved. We've had more than 10,000 people get involved. What does that mean to get involved? I mean, it's a vague thing to say. What do I do? So there's a, a number of different ways. There are folks who are, you know, they they watch it from their computer screen. We have uh, thousands and thousands of hits on the Denverite uh, website, so you can you can track it there. You can there's a place to share your voice and a whole bunch of different ways of of providing uh, your opinions to us. And then lots of uh, meetings that occur. We have a plan van that's you know a, a graphic wrapped van that we go to park city parks with and city events and park it, and people can come up and talk to us. We have iPads. Tons of staff that are around to take iPad surveys, lots of ways to get involved. And a lot of that information you gather and recommendations you make out of it uh, will eventually have to go before city council, which will take up many of these issues. Um, What what do you think the first practical changes in Denver would be as a result of this? I think that the the holistic conversation right now about land use and transportation is spectacular. Having those be hand in hand. Absolutely. That – Transportation, how we move cars, how we move people, bikes, pedestrians in our street is all about the space between the building. That's how we experience and feel about our city. It's the space between the buildings. Yes, the architecture is important important as well, but the space between the buildings, it has to be an integrated design process. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for paying attention to Denverite. It's important. Brad Buchanan is Denver's chief planner and uh, executive director of community planning and development. We've talked about this two-year planning effort called Denverite. It's about halfway through. Now, City Council member Rafael Espinoza, his district, District 1, has been called a hotbed of development. And a welcome to the program. Good, good morning. Well, thank well, you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say that District 1 is home to Jefferson Park, Sloan's Lake, Highlands. These neighborhoods have seen a lot of new construction in recent years. And you've said that they are, to some extent, losing character. Did Blueprint Denver, this older plan, fail in District 1, do you think? Uh no, that's sorry. Uh, it 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 didn't in that Blueprint Denver uh, actually um, addressed a lot of the community concerns, and I sort of correctly identified areas of stability and areas of change. Uh, where it failed is it um, 
is that it, it did make that recommendation for a new zoning code. And the new zoning code should have captured many of the ideals. Uh, and instead, there was a breakdown when that new zoning code was formed. Many of the that, ideals. Uh, what do you mean? Aesthetically or? Yeah, character. You know, there's when they define an area of stability, there's, it speaks a lot to um, those characteristics that make that an area of stability. So when you look around at a neighborhood in your district, what does that look like when the character of the neighborhood is not being honored. So what does it look like? Yeah. It, it, it sort of destroys the public realm. So uh, high, you know, areas that are defined as stable are, are areas that have a good solid public realm. They're generally walkable. Uh, they have a good pedestrian field. The material quality is something that is more tangible, tactile, and sort of resonates with human, the human being. Yeah. So take me to a block. What does it look like in execution? Um, something that offends you. <laughs> something that offends me. Um, I'm trying to think of the sort of worst case scenario. Well, the, the Smurf building on uh, the on Clay Street uh, between twenty uh, between twenty third and twenty fourth. The Smurf building. Describe it for those who are not in Denver. Uh, well, it'd be Smurf blue um, with white uh, trim around the windows, uh, and you're looking at the side of the building um, rather than uh, the front yard. Uh, and then it's more destructive than that because. Uh, it's multi-units uh, on a property. It took over a, um, um, a, a vacated, uh, well, not that project in particular, a different one, but it, it, it replaced two affordable units uh, that were being rented uh, as well as a duplex next door. Uh, so there were four, a total loss of four affordable units to replace them with several market rate units that are basically hideous. And I apologize to the people that moved in there. <laughs> <laughs> but you think it's a reflection of the larger problem with with blueprints. So what what would you like to see coming out of the Denverite planning process that you think would change that? So the real fa- failure there, um, A, Den- the Blueprint Denver talked heavily about land, ma- marrying land use and transit. So we definitely need to connect land use and transit. Um, the What does that mean? Uh, because that, that, that too is sort of planner jargon, connecting land use. And- so a lot of these new developments, they get built. Uh, you, you go through a site plan review process. You, you, you come in with a – you go through a site plan review process, but you're not – the traffic impacts, the congestion impacts, the, the impact to the right-of-way isn't actually uh, addressed until after it's built and the problem crea- exists. Okay. If we were doing a better job, we would be somehow more proactive and cognizant of what the conditions are in the neighborhood and what the capacity is uh, and then and, 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 and tie them. But that's a functional problem because we have two charter agencies, Public Works, and CPD that uh, community planning and development. Yeah, sorry, uh, that uh, do not have an actual sort of uh, they don't cross pollinate in the way that Blueprint Denver spoke of. So I, I'm just trying to game this out. Your concern is that um, it is often homes buildings go up with little thought or disconnected thought to how that impacts, for instance, traffic congestion. How would that change? Because the fact is, if you've got someone moving into a new building, they're going to bring their car with them, presumably. Mm -hmm. That may be less true for younger people. But Mm -hmm. how would that connection and that conversation improve 
something in your neighborhood. So this then goes into the entire citywide planning, right? Yeah. Which is that um, if we had recognized the the values, I mean, the characteristics that made areas stable, mm-hmm. uh, it's, and I'm now speaking to District 1 in context of the city, um, we would, you know, certainly capture more, re, you know, redevelopment, but we would somehow channel redevelopment in areas that have sort of habitually um, stagnated or struggled and, and, and put investment and density in those areas rather than just sort of a cherry pick in, in, in stable neighborhoods. I understand why developers do that because it's far more bankable as a project. Right. People want to live in those neighborhoods. Yeah. But we should be doing more placemaking, creating these places rather than just uh, – grinding up and in, in, in doing that, you know, re- taking advantage of the same, same, the same old places. Isn't that a version of not in my backyard though? Like, uh, no. oh, it's great. Den- <laughs> it's great. Denver is growing. It's great. We're getting all these, you know, new restaurants and, and all of that. Just build it somewhere else. No, no, no. Because there's, there's tons of opportunity in district one to do this sort of placemaking, just like there was tons of opportunity citywide. And so actually creating the same opportunity in more places uh, helps more people and, and, and could capture the growth that we're talking about. So you what, know, would you, what would you tell people in District 1 to do right now? Uh, get involved, you know, because this the Denver right planning process is trying to do to to bring a stronger connectivity by doing the uniform, unified, I mean, uh, with this planning that involves not just uh, codes, but also transportation, yeah. parks, and sees it And so to get involved with that process, because this is going to establish sort of our rulemaking, our ordinance making, our lawmaking uh, going forward, is getting this uh, citizen voice uh, captured in this, in this document will help inform us going forward. Thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you. That is Denver City Councilman Rafael Espinoza of District 1. And earlier we heard from the city's top planner, Uh, That is Brad Buchanan. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Oil barons, roughnecks, it seems like the petroleum business has long been the realm of men. But Anomalies, a new book by Denverite Robbie Grease, paints a different picture. It tells the stories of female petroleum geologists going back a century. These women fought sexism and raised families while making important scientific discoveries. And Robbie, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You say that a University of Colorado graduate, this is Reba Masterson, was one of these pioneering women in petroleum in 1915 with the ink still drying on her geology degree. She was already acquiring oil and gas properties in her native Texas. Uh, What might uh, it have been like for Reba to head out to a site where drillers might strike oil? It had to have been a very courageous thing for a woman to just be driving a a car across the country where she had to crank it up by hand every time she stopped. Even the getting there would have been something The getting there was really tough. Tires going flat all the time. uh, No services along the road. Mostly dirt roads. And her, at first, traveling in long dresses and uh, no real uh, tough field clothes. And then having to arrive at well sites where the people were rough. We're talking about gamblers and prostitutes and uh, cheaters, liars, bankers. Oh, uh, it was 
people that she had to deal with were very, very tough. And she was tough. She carried a pistol with her everywhere she went after her life was threatened. And uh, she often traveled with a female friend that was bigger and tougher. She was only 5'2", so if you can imagine, this tiny little woman uh, operating in the oil fields. It was remarkable. Her life was threatened? Oh, her life was threatened when she was in a lawsuit with uh, Herbert Earl Hunt. And they threatened that if she testified, she might be regretting it. Tell us who Hunt was. H.L. Hunt was a big oil man in Texas. And uh, his fame came when he kind of wrangled the East Texas oil field discovery away from Dad Joyner. And go ahead. So once you get to the sites, right, and and, uh, you are exploring for oil, I'm curious how many wells are actually gushers, because then she's just up against you know, the vagaries of geology itself. Oh, in those days, you might drill a thousand wells before you had a real uh, viable economic discovery. So it was a very expensive business to be in. A lot of people went broke doing it. And she, fortunately, had came from a family with money. And so she never had to work for a company. She always worked on her own behalf. As a geologist. As a geologist. And, and what, what does a geologist do at a well site? Well, most geologists at a well site will be looking at rock samples and trying to predict when you're going to hit the pay zone. And so that's their exciting job. Reba Masterson did something different. She would know what was coming and go around to adjacent landowners and find out and tell them that they might have the proper geology under their uh, their land, and she would take a lease from them. And that way she would enter into very uh, prospective uh, acreage. And when she died, she had properties, oil properties in 20 Texas counties. So she was quite successful at doing this. Did men underestimate her? Oh, very likely. She was just a tiny little person, And I think she could insinuate herself nicely into any operation going on without them realizing what competition she was for leases. (sighs) Which competition, right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Robbie Grease about her new book, Anomalies, Pioneering Women in Petroleum Geology. Uh, Some of the figures in this book date back to 1917. World War I took uh, many men from the workforce, and so it opened up opportunities for women to step in. An early pioneer in petroleum geology was Fanny Carter Edson, and she made some discoveries about the presence of gemstones in relation to oil. Tell us about that part of the work. Fanny Carter Edson started her career as a mining geologist with her husband in Minnesota. So she was very familiar with some of the what we call hard rock and minerals. And when she had to transition into becoming a petroleum geologist years later, as she by then was divorced and became a a single mom raising her daughter alone, she discovered in looking for the complicated pay zones in Oklahoma that various pay zones, whether good or fair or poor, would have a different suite of these interesting gemstones from Uh, garnets, tourmaline, topaz, uh, zircons. 
And she began to distinguish the really good ones from the bad ones. And she would be out sitting on the well and telling the drillers to go deeper, deeper, deeper until they hit the right pay zone. She found a 15 million barrel field that way and really set shell oil on the course to success in Oklahoma. You write that micropaleontology was a revolutionary breakthrough in petroleum geology. This is the study of fossils so small, apparently you need a microscope to see them. And uh, women played an important role in, in advances in micropaleontology, I guess. They did. Uh, three women in Houston were hired to look at uh, f- distinguishing different layers of rock using macropaleo, or large fossils like clams and snails. Okay. But these women found that they were so crushed by the drill bit that they were of no use. And so in looking at other things in the samples, they realized that these tiny microfossils, which no men believe, who worked on them believed that they were complicated enough to give them a stratigraphic uh, distinguished layer, they discovered— they didn't think that they could glean as much information from those microfossils. No, they didn't think they'd no. be useful at all in p- petroleum exploration. But these women found that they were useful. They were a huge breakthrough to to being able to drill economically. And uh, it was the first major technological breakthrough in petroleum geology. Do you want to name some of those women? Those women were Alva Ellisor, Esther Applin, and Hedwig Thusnelda Knicker. <laughs> Say that one more time. Helda? Hedwig. Hedwig, sorry. Thusnelda Knicker. Thusnelda Knicker. What was it like for women in the petroleum industry when you got started in the 1970s? When we started, due to affirmative action in the 1970s, we thought we were the real pioneers. We didn't have any of this previous history Uh, known to us or to our male colleagues. These were not figures you grew up with. No, no. We Uh. just, uh, some of us may have heard of one or two, but we had no idea how they got there or what their impact was. And we had no idea our history went back as far as the men's history in petroleum geology. Was it still difficult, though, to be a woman in the 70s in this industry? Or had had the doors been largely opened? It was... There were difficulties, uh, but they tended to be rare. We had the advantage of equal pay, which none of the women prior to the uh, affirmative action had. Many of these women, like Fanny Carter, were grossly underpaid. Uh, We had the advantage of possibilities for promotion. And if someone was uh, guilty of really mistreating you, in the workplace, we had the advantage of recourse for that. So these are things that none of the earlier women had. It must have been a big deal for you to to dig into these early stories then. Oh, it's fascinating. I just loved getting to know these pioneers. Thank you for sharing some of their stories with us. That is Robbie Rice Grease. Her new book is Anomalies, Pioneering Women in Petroleum Geology. There are photos from the book and an excerpt at CPRnews.org. A story now to satisfy your sweet tooth. The toppings you put on ice cream or frozen yogurt were likely chopped up in Pueblo, Here's CPR's Stephanie Wolf. A factory that chops dessert toppings might bring to mind a certain 1971 film. Come with me and you'll be 
In a world of pure imagination. But there's no chocolate river at TR Toppers in Pueblo. The 166,000-square-foot building is in an industrial part of town, surrounded by other factories, warehouses, and office space. It looks unassuming from the outside. Then you enter the production area, and you're overcome by the scent of chocolate. We get semi-loads of chocolate in. Butterfinger, Heath, M&M's, Reese Peanut Butter Cups, you name it, we have it. Jay Mayhew is TR Topper's warehouse manager. We chop the product up, and then we sell it to... Our customers. The company chops, repackages, and sells hundreds of different topics. When I visit it, they're doing frosted flakes in here right now. They dump it on the shaker table. It goes up in, on the conveyor belt down to the chopper, and then it gets weighed and bagged and brought out and boxed. Cereal is TR Topper's latest endeavor. Maybe you've heard of the Fruit Loops and Lucky Charm shakes that the fast food giant Burger King debuted earlier this year. The sugary cereals got chopped in Pueblo. The company's toppings also end up in treats at Dairy Queen, Baskin-Robbins, Sonic, McDonald's, and in ice cream that you can buy at the grocery store. So how did this $140 million company come to be? Hi, my name is Tim Rode. I'm president of Tier Toppers. Before founding it, Rode and his two brothers, Bob and Greg, ran a handful of frozen yogurt shops in Ogden, Utah. Rode says business started to lag towards the end of the 80s. And at that time, he had an aha moment. One of our best-selling toppings were Reese's peanut butter cups, but you couldn't buy them chopped up anyplace. So I thought if somebody would chop them, put them in a 10-pound box and sell them, then uh, there would be a big market for it. The idea came to him while he was out running. I got home, told my wife, you know, I could hardly contain myself, called my brothers, and, uh, you know, they were both really excited. Then I just started chopping. Rhodes sent the chopped candy to a distributor in Southern California who agreed to sell the toppings. It was a hit. Early on, Rode kept the overhead low. When we were in Ogden, I chopped by hand with uh, two other employees for two years. So we'd chop like 10 hours a day, 1,000 pounds a day of Reese's peanut butter cups. Eventually, demand was too high to continue chopping by hand. In 1994, the brothers moved the business to Pueblo. Distribution was easier from here. The company has grown. Two years ago, the city council gave TR Toppers more than $250,000 to expand. It included an 8,500-square-foot freezer. That's bigger than several homes put together. Council President Steve Naraki. They have been a good partner in terms of our community. And I think they're kind of a model for other smaller companies, especially for those that are looking at trying to expand. With this niche business, TR Toppers has filled an important need for the little guy. Think mom and pop stores. That's according to Malcolm Stogo, who knows the frozen dessert biz inside and out. He's an international ice cream consultant. They've certainly made it easier for basically for ice cream shops or frozen yogurt shops to be able to use ingredients that are already cut up instead of going to a supermarket, buying the bars, and cutting them up themselves, which is pretty labor-intensive. Tier Topper's co-founder Tim Rode credits his father for the success that he and his brothers have shared. Their dad ran a meat company in Oregon. He instilled the entrepreneur spirit in us. More than ice cream, it was just the entrepreneurial spirit. Surprisingly, Rhodes said he doesn't have much of a sweet tooth. His office has more sports memorabilia than candy. But lucky for the Rhodes brothers, there are plenty of candy lovers out there. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News.
a refugee story now. Peter Trin's parents escaped Vietnam after the war ended there. They climbed onto a small fishing boat packed with nearly 100 people and their life savings with them. Eventually, they settled in Denver. Trin has written a one-act play about their plight called Boat Person. It's on this weekend in Fort Collins, presented by Theater Esprit Asia, where he is also assistant director. That is the state's only Asian-American theater company. Peter, welcome to the program. Yes, right. Thank you for having me. Was your parents' immigrant story something that you heard a lot about growing up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Mostly from my father, bits and pieces growing up here and there. So when I was ready to write the play, I I got to sit down with him and kind of get the chronology of it and and really record him and put put the pieces together in my head the way they actually happened. What slivers of the story stand out to you? What what is indelible? Uh, little little details like when uh, my parents were finally picked up by a U.S. naval ship, it w- he ate an apple for the first time. Not a food that was known to him. Not not a food that was indigenous to Vietnam. Yeah, and it was uh, reserved for for the the rich during New Year's and little details like how delicious he felt it was and things like that. Literally the taste of freedom. The taste of freedom, yeah. So a little of the backstory here. In 1975, armed forces from northern Vietnam seized the South and Mm. made it a unified communist country. Correct. Why did your parents feel they had to leave Vietnam, I, I think some six years later, it was not immediate? Right. There were changes into daily life there. Um... My dad's older brother was a South Vietnamese officer, and he was put in in these uh, re-education camps, and life got difficult. Um, You couldn't do anything without the government having their hand in it. Um, My dad always explained communism to me as a child growing up, that is, if I had no money and you had $10, you had to give me 5 so, um, and you didn't like that idea of getting five dollars as a kid. <laughs> yeah, it, it, not if well, <laughs> if it was the other way around, I'm sure uh-huh. I wouldn't like it as very much, you know. But um, it was the idea that you know they people didn't want to raise their kids there anymore. They didn't feel like their kids had a future there. So there was only America and you know President Ford's Immigration Act gave them a direct vantage point to get somewhere better. It must have been, I think, as you hinted with your family, it must have been hard, too, to have been a part of the South and have that reputation when the North took over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, even in the dialect between North, Central, and South Vietnam, very, very different. They're almost even different countries, different uh, ideals and stuff like that. I. I, I have cousins, their parents are from the Central, and I can't even understand them, even though I, I'm fluent in Vietnamese. So it was a huge change that occurred in Vietnam there, and one that just did not make your family feel welcome or at home anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what kind of arrangements did they have to make to leave Vietnam? So illegal dealings on the black market, essentially. My dad always said the cost was one gold bar per person. Um, which my 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 mom's father, my grandfather, footed for, and uh, yeah, it was literally like an underground railroad type of thing, where you you had to keep dealings quiet in order not to be found out. And uh, when they were ready to leave, it was literally in the middle of the night. People with 
you know, their, their bags and handbags and just things that they could carry and their children, little children as young as newborn, really being carried in the middle of the night, people filing into a small fishing boat, trying to stay quiet as they can. And then dispersing into the river. Most rivers led to the Mekong, which emptied out into the Pacific. And that's where your parents were headed. That's where they were headed. Yeah. They were, the idea was, um, there was a small remote Island, off the southeast coast of Vietnam that people knew to go to and freighters or commuters from the U.S. Navy passed there often and would pick people up. Interesting. I mean, it was an official declaration. It was a policy of the United States government that this, this, this occur and that the U.S. bring in these refugees. But the right. process of it was really very underground, as, as you're describing. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the U.S. couldn't come in and take you or anything right. like that. So it was like, if you can get out of Vietnamese waters, we'll pick you up. I want to ask you about what that looked like for your parents in a moment. But let me say that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Peter Trin. He's an actor and assistant artistic director at Theater Esprit Asia. And he has written a one-act play about his parents' immigration story called Boat Person. And you noted that this came out of interviews you did with your father, not so much your mother. Was she more reluctant to speak? Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Just growing up, my dad always talked about it. And my mom never really talked about the experience. Um, my relationship with my father is, 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 is a lot stronger in that sense anyways. Okay. So. When your parents fled, uh, did they face direct danger? That is, were, were they attacked right. for trying to leave? They did. They did. And that's chronicled in the play. Um, once they got to the Pacific border, essentially, they were shot at by um, communist coast guards. So on the water, this happened? On the water, yeah. In the, in the dead of night. With um, all these dozens of other people in right, the boat. About 100, 100 people in a small fishing boat that was only like 45 feet long. Um, that was not meant for holding that many people or or being on the water for very long at all. Um, it was powered by a a small engine that they repurposed from a Army Jeep utility vehicle. A Jeep engine was running this boat? Yeah. Was anyone on board shot, do you know? No. No, nobody was shot. Um, there was no, no significant damage to the boat. Um, so they didn't even know if they were like, if they were, sh- it, was, it was shoot to kill or if it was like shoot warning to shots. Scare, right. Yeah. So let's talk about the interception of their boat by the American forces, which is what they were hoping for. What do you know about that scene besides your father tasting the apple? Um, it was called the USS Shasta. Um, and they picked him up after about seven days on the open ocean. Seven alone. days in those conditions? Seven days in the hot tropics, yeah. The cruise no one wanted to take, yeah. Yeah, in the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. And I, my, my dad has a little card that from the Shasta that was like, that he declared you as a refugee still. Um, Is this something he showed you? Yeah, yeah, that he showed me that he still has identity cards, pictures of them that were identified them as as legal refugees but it was the most gigantic ship that they had ever seen before my dad said it was like floating up to a giant skyscraper in the middle of the water 
Um, and, and they'd been in this dinky little boat. Dinky little boat. Whose engine time. gave out eventually, right? Right. Whose engine gave out, who people became ill and people voiding themselves inside the, in the hole. And, and it was, it was not a, a great place to be. And the damp wooden floors would, would, um, cause blisters on people's legs and thighs from sitting there. But the ship, it was, it was everything of the sanctuary that it was supposed to be. They brought out cots and blankets and food for them. And they were treated like guests and, and they, 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 they weren't objectified or anything like that. And everybody was happy to, to have them aboard and save them. And they were free to walk about. They weren't like sequestered to a certain part of the ship or anything. And so you could imagine this, this U S Naval ship with uh, over a hundred refugees non-english speaking just running around like kids looking at these giant you know equipments and hardware and that afternoon actually they picked up a second ship or a second boat a second fishing boat uh-huh. with like another hundred vietnamese refugees in it i've just googled the uss shasta and yes i can imagine it looking like a skyscraper in the sea yeah especially if you'd been in those conditions absolutely so why is, is uh, now, do you think, a, a powerful time, a salient time to tell the boat person story? That's the name of the play you've written based on the experiences you've shared with us. Well, um, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious, of course, right? Right, right now, we, it, it's hard. It's hard because I believe this country was built on a place where people from anywhere could come to live freely and have opportunity and now it seems like we're closing those doors and we're not where we're saying no the people that are here are here now and we don't want any more people and that that's that's rough and especially you know immigrants or people that are, are not exactly citizens yet are worried about their their status and what what their future holds for them you know i think that some would push back and say it's not that we are against immigrants it's that we want to make sure that that we are safe on our soil. Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, um, um, but there's there's processes. You know, there's, there's things in place to make sure that those things that the people that we let in are, are safe people. You know, and I mean, we could talk around in circles, right, all day long. But when when it comes to when it comes to people that don't have a country, you know, people that that are are lost and people that don't have a place to go to anymore you know i mean the united states was always a place to go to and open their doors and now it's it's changing and you're a product of that i am yeah i am you know i couldn't be an actor in vietnam <laughs> i guess i i guess i could but i mean um it's yeah, been a very different life a very different life and you can imagine my parents joy when they found out they they risked their lives for their son to become an actor. That is playwright Peter Trin, who is also assistant artistic director of Theater Esprit Asia, the state's only Asian-American theater company. His piece, Boat Person, is part of a larger evening of immigrant stories called Coming to America. That production runs through the weekend at Bob Bleu Theater in Fort Collins. Finally today, the Chicano Music Festival in Denver is underway. It's organized by Sioux Teatro Cultural and Performing Arts Center. There's dancing, film screenings, and the induction ceremony for the Chicano Music Hall of Fame. One of this year's honorees is Denver's own Conjunto Colores. 
They formed in the 1970s and are widely considered Colorado's first salsa band. The song is called Solito from Denver salsa band Conjunto Colores. They'll be inducted into the Chicano Music Hall of Fame as part of this week's Chicano Music Festival. It runs through Sunday along Santa Fe Drive in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters, on Facebook, CPR News, or reach out through our website, CPRnews.org forward slash connect. You'll find all the ways to get a hold of us there, cprnews.org slash connect. This is Colorado Public Radio.